Good morning. It is a privilege that I'm able to stand before you this morning, and I'm humbled by the opportunity to be able to speak with you about God and to consider his word with you today. What does the Christian do when suffering comes for seemingly no reason at all? Beginning October 17th, 2016, Jess and I began our journey into the depths of suffering. When at 35 weeks, pregnant with our daughter, the doctor told Jess, during what was supposed to be just a normal routine OB visit that was supposed to last 15 minutes in and out, that she couldn't find a heartbeat. So I got this text when I was working from home of what the doctor had told her, and immediately then I rushed to the hospital, a bit in shock and wondering what I was going to find. I found Jess waiting in an office, waiting for an ultrasound to confirm whether or not our little girl was still alive. But sadly, as we looked at the ultrasound screen, there was nothing moving. She wasn't breathing. And there was no heartbeat. And needless to say, we were crushed beyond what we could imagine. And we were told we could go home, we could pack some of our things, and that we could come back then to the hospital because Jess was have to have to go through the delivery process. So we went home and we wept and we called our families in our tears. And we told them what had happened and we got our bags packed and we decided to go back to the hospital. And probably one of the saddest things to watch was was Jess having to walk past the bag, you know, that you prepare as a new mother for your child. And she had to just had to walk past it because we didn't need it. I will get through this. So we went back to the hospital and while we were there, we got settled in for the night and uh, it was probably the worst night of our lives. And plus it was. As we lay next to each other trying to sleep just in a hospital bed and I was in this very uncomfortable pull-out couch-like thing. We recommended a change for that. And it was dark and it was quiet, except for each other just trying to sleep. And we had some quiet piano music playing to kind of calm ourselves. And occasionally a nurse came in. It was all very lonely, as you can imagine, because just a few hours before, we were a young couple expecting to be able to hold our child, our first child, in our arms. But now we were speechless and weeping through the night, knowing that in the morning we'd have to experience the delivery of our baby girl without life in her body. We have never wept more. We have never been more defeated. We have never been more broken than we were during those long night hours where we lived in unspeakable suffering. That's the start to our story of suffering, a story I never imagined telling you. But I know that as I stand here today, I don't have a monopoly on suffering. And I know that I'm not the only one, that we're not the only ones who have suffered in this life. I know many of you have or are suffering immensely, so I know that we are among sufferers then 
this morning. I don't stand up here as one who have answers to suffering, and I don't presume to know what you have gone through or what you need to hear. What I have worked with God to prepare is a discussion about him. to share his truths with you that he has confirmed in our story of suffering and the truths that he wants to confirm in your stories of suffering. And these truths are boiled, boiled down or this, that God is good and he is sovereign, especially in the midst of suffering. And so when suffering is such a prevalent part of our lives, what kind of response then are we to have? What are we supposed to do? Is there any wisdom that we can know and apply so that we can have the right response, the response that gets us through suffering, even though we're crumbling and we feel destroyed? Perhaps this morning we can add truths to those answers or those questions, even if we can't have the answers to them. And to help us address these kinds of questions and for us to walk through the reality of suffering together, if you would turn in your Bibles, let's turn to the book of Job, a man who was faithful and persistent in his faith in spite of the suffering that he had to endure. And we're going to take an overview, so don't get nervous. We are going through the whole book, just not reading it all. Job chapter 1, let's just read the first verse. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. From the start of the book, the author wants us to notice the kind of man Job was, that he was pure, that he was upright, that he was blameless, that he was innocent. And though not sinless, Job's heart was fixed on trying to please God. And so the outcome of his righteous character then was to fear God, to turn away, to forsake from any, forsake anything that was evil. And he could easily be described as a truly devoted worshiper of the one true God. So this was a man of faith, but not just a man of faith, but also a man who was greatly blessed. The author explains in chapter 1 that Job owned many sheep and camels and oxen and donkeys He had servants, he had many children, and his family was tight-knit and very wealthy, all of this having come, all of these blessings having come by the hand of God. And as we go through this morning, I have a simple illustration, this little Lego guy, he's going to represent for us Job, a man blessed by God and a man faithful to God. And at the beginning of the book, the author is implying this important question that will then launch us into the rest of the book. And the question is this, what if it's all taken away? Would he still be righteous if his blessings were stripped from him? Would he still trust in God and remain innocent? The author paints this picture with the character Satan who believes that Job's faith and his righteous living was based purely in blessing. Satan even goes before God to challenge God regarding this man Job. But according to the author, Job is known by God though. And in fact, Job, or God has observed Job and found him to be blameless, unlike any who has walked the face of the earth. What about my servant, Satan? What about my servant, Job? To which Satan puts forth his challenge. God, take away all of Job's blessing, then he will curse you and he will cease to be blameless because his righteous living is solely based in the good things he has received from you. So God, in part to prove that the ones faithful to him do not serve him for creaturely comfort, but out of their love for him, he gives them authority over 
to Satan, to plunder Job, the authority to do as he pleased with this one restriction. Don't touch Job's person. The question implied by Satan's challenge is, why then are the righteous righteous? What is the point of their righteousness? What is it based in? In blessing or something else entirely? So Satan goes to carry out his evil deed as the story goes, and Job has no clue it's coming. You want to talk about being blindsided. Job was definitely blindsided as one by one, even as one servant was telling him something, another servant was coming up to him, and they were saying to him, Job, look, your animals, they're gone, they're dead, they're taken away. Your servants, they've all been butchered, and your children who you love so much, they were in this house, and the house caved in, and they're all dead as well. Within With this news, Job goes from blessed to ruined within minutes. In an instant, he was financially and emotionally ruined. So what was Job's initial response? It's one to take note of as Job tore his robe, shaved his head in intense mourning. He was utterly broken, been brought to nothing. The loss is so great and so sudden that no matter what words we use to describe it, it cannot contain the amount of suffering that Job was experiencing. Job's response at the end of chapter 1, verse 20 is described as falling to the ground and worshiping. Every time I read that, it's just incredible to think that the first thing that Job would do in the face of such extensive suffering is to fall into the ground in a posture of worship before God. And in this action, we should recognize that we are looking at a man who suffers, not as humanity's worst, but as actually humanity's best, the best moral man on earth at the time. And in this posture of worship, Job says these famous words in verse 21, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But Job, how can you respond like this? How can you respond in worship? I mean, Job has no clue as to why this has all taken place, but still he maintains his faith in God, which the author highlights in verse 22. In all this, Job did not sin or curse God with wrong. But Satan's not done with Job, and he goes back before God for this second challenge to take away what a man holds dearest, that is, his own life. Strike his person, then he'll curse you, Satan argues. And God granted then Satan again that authority to destroy Job's body, but now the restriction is just don't take his life. So Satan again leaves and enacts his new authority upon Job, and Job is immediately covered from head to toe with these horrific sores, these infected sores with pus coming out of them. And so he uses shards of pottery to scrape these wounds and the pus away. What an awful sight to behold that Job is sitting there. And what we know about him, these questions then begin arising. Why Job? Why has he been overwhelmed by suffering when he is an innocent man? Why would God allow the innocent to suffer? Let's go back to our Lego then and let's add then another component. That Job now in the mix is completely surrounded, engulfed by tragedy, by suffering, by chaos, by evil. And Job is beginning to understand that perhaps now, Suffering's here to stay. This is going to be what my life is going to be about, is suffering. But still, though, he doesn't curse God. He shows that he will remain in relationship with God, even without blessings, and that his relationship with God is not dependent upon blessings, that even in the midst of the chaos, he will remain faithful to God. But the question still lingers, how could an innocent man suffer like this? And this was on Job's mind as he sat there, but not on on his only, but also on the community. 
where we read in, about in chapter 2 that this community came around him and they were asking this same thing. After Job's lost it all, the friends hear what had happened to him and they come to him. Three of them. And the picture is that his community has gathered to try to comfort him and so they weep with him and they're silent with him for a period of a week, for seven days. No one speaks. For the community has gathered to see about answering the question, why has the innocent suffered? Or so, to flip that question, the answer that they're seeking is to this question, why are the righteous righteous? What's the purpose? What's the foundation of the righteousness? And when suffering comes, what is a wise man, a righteous man supposed to do? And so for a week, they sit in silence, Job, his friends, Job knowing his suffering intimately and tremendously until he can no longer take it in silence. He no longer is at a point where he can handle it. And so he breaks the silence, his outburst dripping with despair as he now suffers psychologically. Though his life has not been taken from him, chapter three tells us that he wishes he had actually died at birth or at least that now death would come to him. And Job in his despair denies that life is good, that the life God has given is good. And what follows then is that Job finds that God's goodness then isn't there either. But while these, we would consider these to be strong words, and while they are, Job does not curse God nor deny that God is still the one who rules his life. So Job has this breaking point and he breaks the silence and his friends then are obviously listening to this outburst and they feel compelled. They feel compelled to respond and answer Job. So they come together to give Job the community perspective. They originally came to provide comfort and support, but now they feel obligated to do two additional things, two additional things for Job in speeches that span the chapters four through 37. First, they, they want to figure out why this man who they thought was innocent now suffers and in such great pain. And then secondly, in their self-constructed wisdom, they want to offer a resolution then to his suffering. So to figure out why this man, innocent man, was now suffering, the friends unite themselves around their understanding of God and how this world operates under the thinking that has been called retribution theology. And they use this understanding as the reason for why Job suffers. Their thinking is essentially this. If you sin, then you suffer. If you are suffering, that means that you are a sinner. And the reverse then is true. If you are blessed, it means you are righteous. If you are righteous, then you are blessed. And so why is Job then suffering according to his friends? Well, because obviously he is a sinner because they see him then in suffering. They don't hold this view because they see and have seen Job be a great sinner. They haven't observed sin in the life of Job. They just consider him a sinner because they see him now in suffering. But we, the readers, we know better because we have read how Job is described at the beginning of the book by even God himself, that he is actually blameless and he is innocent. The reasoning of the friends is illustrated in chapter 4. And we'll read a few verses. Chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Verses 7 through 9, excuse me. Remember who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. The friends believe that Job's suffering problem is a result of his own personal sin. But this just isn't true. The upright life of Job has proved that his suffering is not due to sin. And perhaps we think the same way, perhaps when we see other people suffering. I wonder what they did that put him in that kind of a position. To think that way is 
to have a thinking that is in no way different from the friends who just don't get it. So having determined in their mind that Job is suffering because of his personal sin, they turn now to fix his problem through their own wisdom. For wisdom, and this is true, wisdom works to not only diagnose a situation, but also then prescribe a remedy to it. And Job's friends have a remedy for Job. Since your sin is the problem, and since that is the result, or that's the cause then of your suffering, your remedy then is to repent. Again, this prescription is put to Job multiple times. Zophar's first speech is a good example of this, where he says in chapter 11, verses 13 through 20, he says this, If you prepare your heart, you will stretch out your hands towards him. If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away, and let not injustice dwell in your tents. Surely then you will lift up your face without blemish. You will be secure and will not fear. You will forget your misery. You will remember it as waters that have passed away. And your life will be brighter than the noonday. Its darkness will be like the morning. And you will feel secure because there is hope. You will look around and take rest in in security. You will lie down and none will make you afraid. Many will court your favor. But the eyes of the wicked will fail. All way of escape will be lost to them. And their hope is to breathe their last. The, The idea is that repentance will solve Job's suffering problem. And if Job repents, then God will restore him to his previous condition. But that isn't even close to being the remedy that Job needs as he faces his suffering. For what has the innocent to repent of? And how are Job's friends getting it so wrong? When we consider where they are getting their wisdom from, it begins to make a little bit more sense. For their wisdom comes from human reasoning and traditions and experiences that at times may have some godly influences but in most respects are just human efforts that are devoid of godly understanding. And as you read through the friends' speeches, you're going to find that at times they do speak truth, which at times can make these speeches a little difficult to parse through and to understand. But the issue is that they take a truth about God, then they misapply it, they misunderstand that truth's purpose, and they presume to know how that truth then should apply here to Job's life because they don't have really a clue. And several times they are right, but then they go too far, and the truth that they quote and twist causes more harm than good. For example, in their speeches, they essentially argue that God is all-powerful, that he is righteous, that he is wise, that he destroys the wickedness that is in the world. But while that is true, they, in the same breath, take that truth and limit God, denying God's freedom to use evil and suffering and chaos in life to accomplish God's good and sovereign purposes. When we look at the friends' responses to Job's suffering, we should realize that we are susceptible as well to take the truths of God, to share them, but then distort them with our human understanding. And these speeches, they go back and forth for 33 chapters, and instead of reaching some encouraging end, they actually become more acidic, sarcastic, accusatory, and downright damaging, destroying any community that once existed between Job and his friends. And so now now we see that Job has suffered, Not only financially, emotionally, physically, psychologically, but now he is also suffering relationally as his friends take the truths of life and God and they use them to abuse Job instead of providing a wise answer to the suffering that he is facing. They should have humbly and prayerfully looked looked to God for insight into this mess on earth, but they didn't. So human wisdom fails Job. So how is Job doing? We've talked about his friends. How is Job doing in the midst of his suffering and all this opposition and unfair accusations? 
In these same chapters, chapters 4 through 37, Job has speeches of his own. It's important to understand that in Job's responses, he doesn't deny the same understanding that his friends did, that the wicked suffer and the righteous then are blessed. Job believes this too, which makes his suffering so distressing to him because he knows he's innocent. He knows that he has walked blamelessly before God because it has been a priority of his to have faith in God and walk in a right relationship with him. But now he is suffering. Why? Why am I, though innocent, suffering? So he tries to apply his own wisdom to these plaguing questions. But just like his understanding of how the world works, his wisdom is the same as his friends and it falls woefully short. And there's three main things going on in these speeches that Job gives. First, Job is in extreme pain, and we would expect that, having read everything that Job has had to endure. And so in these speeches, we're going to see him suffer in the final category as he suffers spiritually. And Job couldn't suffer anymore, and there's no end in sight to his pain and agony. And so Job expresses his deep pain with steep rawness, and he is brutally honest about the pain he is experiencing. And though he points some of his speeches to his friends, As you read through, you find that he also points some of this, though, towards God himself. Listen to Job, in fact, and turn back to chapter 6, verses 8 and 9. Oh, that I might have my request, and that God would fulfill my hope, that it would please God to crush me, that he would let loose his hand and cut me off. And then in the next chapter, chapter 7, verse 16. I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Leave me alone for my days or a breath. Or chapter 9, verses 16 through 18. If I summoned him and he answered me, I would not believe he is listening to my voice. For he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not let me get my breath, but fills me with bitterness. And lastly, in chapter 14, verses 8 and 9. Chapter 16, verses 8 and 9. And he has shriveled me up, which is a witness against me, and my leanness has risen up against me. It testifies to my face. And these are honest words of a man in deep, deep pain. And for those of you who have suffered, I'm sure Job's expressions of pain, these different things that he's expressing honestly, you can resonate with. And this great pain, secondly, then leads to Job lamenting and complaining to God and even at times leveling accusations at God. Because based upon how Job believes the world is supposed to work, for God to be making him an innocent man suffer, that's just unjust. So then according to Job's reasoning, God treats people unfairly. And, is un- and it's unjust because he doesn't guarantee blessings for the righteous and suffering for the wicked. Doesn't God know that it's not right for the innocent to suffer? But still, Job's experience is that the innocent do suffer. And his experience leads him to conclude that God is arbitrary in his treatment of people. It doesn't matter whether they're innocent or wicked. An example of this is found in chapter 9 again. Verses 22 through 24. It is all one. Therefore, I say, he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hands of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges. If it is not he, then who is it? So God must be unjust. 
That's Job's diagnosis. And his fix to his problem is putting his case before someone who would hear him out. Job believes if he could just get an audience before God, if he could just get someone to listen to him who has the ear of God, that he could just straighten all this out and then God would cease his suffering and perhaps would even restore his blessings to him. That's Job's desire. But then in chapter 9, this belief shakes and wavers and basically dissipates where Job says this in verses 32 through 35. For he is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. Let him take his rod away from me and let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak without fear of him, for I am not so in myself. Even though he laments and complains to God, it's important to see that still Job does not curse God. God is still the one to whom Job turns. Which leads us to the third thing, that Job still has hope. Hope of someone who could be his witness then in heaven, who could testify on his behalf before God. He says this, turn to chapter 14. 14, beginning in verse 14 through 17. Verses 14 through 17. says this, If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my service I would wait till my renewal should come. You would call and I would answer you. You would long for the work of your hands. For then you would number my steps. You would not keep watch over my sin. My transgression would be sealed up in a bag and you would cover over my iniquity. And then go into chapter 16 in verse 19. Chapter 16, verse 19. Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven and he who testifies for me is on high. And then this hope, this, it builds and it crescendos until we get to chapter 19 in this famous passage in verse 25 through 27 in Job 19. 25 says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. This hope includes a persistent faith that God would work his ultimate justice and renewal where death and suffering would be no more, where sin isn't in existence. And, this conf- and after this confession in Job 19, Job doesn't really ever doubt again. Even in the face of his awful sufferings and the presence of the worst things that have happened to him, still his faith perseveres in God. His hope remains sure in spite of the chaos and evil surrounding him. But even though he questions God, even though he accuses him, even though he defends his blamelessness before God, even though he pours out his pain to God, he does all of this without abandoning God. He still talks to God, seeks his help, prays to him, even when God to him seems to be either absent or uncaring. And even if at times his words are strong, Job's strong words are not a denial of faith and trust in God, but they're outworking in Job's extreme circumstances. And as we get to the end of Job's speeches in chapters 27 through 31, Job, though not doubting, continues to vacillate between calm and feelings of distress. And during his calm, he actually recognizes what true wisdom is. If you turn to chapter, chap- chapter 28, if you turn to chapter 28, verse 28, Job says this about wisdom, and he said to man, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. But then he goes on, and he neglects then this very same wisdom, 
and he misunderstands it, which then leads him back into distress. This back and forth, though, between calm and despair and distress isn't surprising as Job is still embodying the psychology of a sufferer. For after tragedy, a sufferer may reach a period of calm in the midst of chaos, only again to feel the effects of the calamity and then fall back into the distress, which is exactly what happens in chapters 29 through 31. And then Job concludes in chapter 31 with confidence that he will see God. And when he does, then he will challenge God. And he's going to set the record straight then. Listen to Job in chapter 31, verses 35 and 36. Chapter 31, verse 35. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder. I would bind it on me as a crown. I would give him an account of all my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. So by the end of his speech is Job's ready to meet God. And with that, he becomes silent again. And we know that he may get his wish, but his encounter with God may not go as he anticipates. It's at this point after the speeches of Job and his friends that another person named Elihu enters the conversation in chapter 32. The author kind of surprises us because we're not expecting anyone else to be there. We haven't heard of them so far, but still Elihu, possibly others in the community, they were all listening in to these discussions. Elihu was younger than the others, so he's been quiet this whole time. But now that everyone has stopped talking, the younger man is burning with anger. Anger against Job because Job justified himself instead of God. Job wanted to try his case before God, prove his blamelessness. So Elihu's angry with him. Then Elihu's also angry then with his three friends. In chapter 32, verse 3, it says, He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. And so then Elihu goes on to give this lengthy speech to Job and to his friends. But what can he add? Does he have the answers to Job's sufferings? He sure thinks he does. After listening to older men try to answer Job's problem and fail, Elihu loses confidence and wisdom from experience and age. And according to him, he says that his wisdom is actually this. In chapter 32, beginning in verse 7, it says, And I said, Let days speak, and many years teach wisdom. But it is the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. It is not the old who are wise, nor the aged who understand what is right. Therefore, I say, listen to me. Let me also declare my opinion. So by this kind of enlightenment, Elihu believes himself qualified to venture into the discussion where his predecessors have failed. And this younger man does at times speak truth, just like Job has, just like Job's friends have. But he doesn't add anything to the conversation that we haven't already heard. He just copies the reasoning of Job and his friends, that the wicked suffer and the righteous are blessed. And he appeals, though, to Job. He wants Job to listen in his speech and understand that Job is in a meek position before an almighty God. But Elihu doesn't understand God any more than Job's three friends did. He isn't any more helpful. He doesn't add anything new to the conversation. And his so-called wisdom is rejected as well when he receives no response at the end of his speech. And instead of speaking about what he did not understand, he should have done what no one has done yet, which is point Job to humility and prayer before God so that Job might seek wisdom from God himself and not from these wisdom-lacking men. By the end of this, I'm thinking, Job, will anyone be able to help you in your time of suffering, give you wisdom? Because to this point, no one has. 
In the morning hours of Tuesday, October 18th, 2016, after an unbearable night, Jess and I were desperate for wisdom to help us understand why we were enduring the suffering in our lives. And I remember watching helplessly my wife, with great love, push through physical, emotional, and spiritual pain, the pain of labor, and our daughter was stillborn at approximately 9.30 a.m. Why us? Why was our child not allowed to grow up with us? Why are we not able to raise her to love and to serve God? We don't know why our daughter was stillborn that morning. Our doctor thought it was because the size of the placenta was too small to get her nutrients. But then others have thought that perhaps the placenta was not the issue. Our daughter looked as healthy as babies come, except she wasn't breathing when I held her three-pound, three-ounce limp body. We have no idea why. So the, for us, the questions remain, and we identify with Job in his pain then, in his questions posed to God, in his comments to God, in his fragile faith and hope, surrounded by evil and chaos and sadness. And I'm sure many of you identify with him as well, as all of us, like Job, we're living underneath this canopy of chaos. So when the debate stops, Job is still there underneath his canopy of suffering, chaos, surrounded by tragedy, still reeling from deep, deep pain, yet through it all still holding to his faith in God. And it's in that moment that someone else joins the discussion, someone who has been there all along. And his voice comes out of this whirlwind. In chapter 38, verse 1, it says this, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. And notice from where the Lord speaks to Job. It's in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the evil, in the midst of the questions, uncertainty and unknown, in the midst of pain and suffering, or as the author of Job describes it, in the midst of the whirlwind. The Lord answers Job. The author makes known that God continues to be present even in chaos and suffering. And to suffer as a servant of God is to not suffer alone. For you see, God has not been blind. He's not been absent. He's not been disinterested, uncaring towards his servant Job. God has not abandoned Job to his ruin and suffering. Actually, it's just the opposite. In the midst of the chaos and evil that Job is drowning in, God is present. And it is when his suffering is at his greatest point, when he has suffered the loss of all, that God speaks to his servant. And God responds to Job in chapters 38 through 41. And throughout God's response, he, he sends impossible question after impossible question to this man. And it appears God is actually irritated with Job for some of his prideful assumptions and conclusions. And as you read through it, you might be asking, uh, has God just totally ignored Job's suffering? Because it does not appear that he has provided any clear explanations for it. But perhaps it's not about what God has not explained but it's about what he did explain about himself and about the world he created. And in fact, God uses creation to explain himself, to get across to Job the point that he is sovereign and that while he is sovereign and things happen in the world that are seemingly chaotic, that he is always and completely good in everything that he does. Let me try to put it this way. As if God says to Job, Job, I see your pain. I see your suffering. I see you in the midst of the chaos and the evil in this life. But can you understand what my words are to you? I am over all. I am always good. I will forever be sovereign. So when chaos and evil surround you, enclose you, overwhelm you, realize this, that I am God and I actually confine your chaos. I put a boundary on evil. It does not go beyond the limits I have set on it. And we can see this in a couple of instances. Job 38 verses 4 through 7. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding 
Verse five, who determined its measurements? Surely, you know, or who stressed the line upon it or what on what were its bases sunk or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. God communicates to Job that he didn't take counsel with anyone when he created and yet Job would seek to confine him to actions that Job would expect. Not at all. If Job was not involved in creation, then how can he have understanding when it comes to suffering on earth? That's beyond his control and understanding. If nothing else, God communicates that the creator doesn't need to explain to his creation the existence of chaos and evil that remain within his boundaries. Let's consider one more example in Job 38, 8 through 11. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? Verse 9. When I make clouds its garments and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribe limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come and no farther and here shall your proud waves be stayed. And this is such a good picture that God paints for Job by using the sea as a clear example of chaos, evil, and human pride. Job, who has set boundaries to the chaos of the sea? I have. And while I have put within strict limits the chaotic energy of the sea, so it seemingly still has the freedom to act chaotically, but it always operates within my divine restraint. And then lastly, God's responses, of God's responses, he speaks of the famous behemoth and Leviathan. And God uses these creatures in chapters 40 and 41 to teach Job that those creatures are so powerful and massive that humans could never tame them or control them. But God explains that he rules over them And they too are restricted to God's set boundaries for them. And so God voluntarily explains himself and his workings to Job through rhetorical questions and examples of creation. That God orders all aspects of creation. And for every action of God, then how can we ever raise a fist then to our creator? How can we presume to know what we cannot understand? In this life, as the life of Job shows and God communicates, God is not absent or disinterested in our suffering. Like I said, it's actually the opposite. God has a good plan that he is working in and through our lives. And what we need to humble ourselves to is that chaos and evil may be used by God to affect his plan. And that's okay because my God, your God, confines all chaos. And chaos's dominion cannot and will never go outside the limits God sets for it. Our God is both good and sovereign, especially in the midst of suffering. God is free to be God. So Job, will you trust him even though he permits you to suffer? Will you trust him? even though he permits you to suffer. This leaves one last piece to our illustration. God tells us, like he told Job, that your chaos, your suffering, it's actually confined by me. So even though Job is here, blessed and righteous, and though he suffers, and though we put chaos and evil and suffering around him, even beyond that, though, is God. I control what you never could and never will be able to. So do not deny my goodness and my justice. Understand that evil and its consequent suffering has a restricted place within my creation that might be beyond your understanding and control. So what is Job's response to God's perfect wisdom? Job finally sees and he encounters true wisdom. And in his encounter with God, instead of putting on evidence of his blamelessness like he really wanted to do this entire time, Job is silent. Job chapter 40, verse 4. Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. And in his second response, God's power and wisdom 
brings Job to repentance. Look at chapter 42. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Verse 3. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I do not, did not understand. Things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you will make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job no longer seeks an answer to his question of why am I suffering since I'm innocent. He simply bends the knee to God in submission to his revealed sovereignty and goodness. While while God's answer may be nothing like what we would wish he would have provided Job, God's answer is everything we need to know so that we can make it through suffering until we make it and see him in heaven. And notice Job's repentance and submission and embrace of God's uh, sovereignty and goodness comes when Job still sits in the midst of his suffering, still sits in the whirlwind, still sits in unimaginable pain. It is only after his repentance, but not because of his repentance, that God blesses again his servant Job with more than he did before. So Job again is blessed tremendously with possessions and children. He is restored to his community and to his friends. And so Job finished out his life living with his persistent faith and trust and hope in the God who proved and explained himself to be good and sovereign, which was especially seen then in Job's suffering. We read this at the end in verse 16 and 17 of chapter 42. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died, an old man and full of days. For several days after our daughter was born, stillborn, we spent hours with her and with our families, weeping and weeping until we literally had no more tears to cry. We were completely emptied. On the following Saturday, we had a memorial service for our daughter, and then we laid her in the grave, her grandfathers and I taking turns to gently scoop dirt over her casket so that we could walk her from beginning to end. I don't know how much wisdom Jess and I had before the death of our daughter, but I know now more than ever that God is good and that he is sovereign, especially in the midst of suffering. And Jess and I are testaments to his goodness and his sovereignty in our lives, and we are content to trust in him, even when it means we cannot hold our daughter in our arms in this life. I haven't told you our daughter's name yet, though many of you already know it. After reviewing name after name and meaning after meaning, we finally settled upon the name that we believe God had for our daughter. And we named her Annie Regan a couple weeks before she died. And we picked this name because together her name means the king is gracious, the king gives grace. At her memorial service, Grandpa Hoff, or as you all affectionately call him, PT, he made this observation that Annie Regan was not named as a result of tragedy. But out of our knowledge of God and his grace, which was there long before he lost Annie to death. It was our desire from the start to give Annie over to him and to have his will done in her life that she might declare forever through her name and through her life that the king of kings is truly gracious. We just didn't know that she would look upon the king before us. For you see, Annie was named as a declaration of the unwavering goodness and grace of God that transcends and confines such horrifying grief as the loss of your child. 
Has not the story of Job explained the same thing to us this morning? I don't know how you walked in this morning. I don't know what, what suffering you're trying to shoulder or what suffering is coming at you. I don't know your pain, nor have I tried to presume what it is. But maybe Job has helped us understand the wise response to suffering. He is brought to financial, to emotional, to physical, to psychological, to relational, to spiritual ruin. And in every way, Job suffered, yet he trusted God. And that may sound too simplistic in such awful times, but then going back to our first question this morning, what does the Christian do when suffering comes for seemingly no reason at all? Trust, faith, and hope in God, that is enough. And as we come to the end of Job, we now have truths to work with. We now have wisdom to embrace. Even if we don't have all the answers, we can know that while chaos may appear to have full reign, we can take comfort in the fact that evil is on a leash and that God is holding on to that leash tightly. Like in Job's case, God will probably not show us the big picture reason for our suffering, but the beauty is that perhaps the specific reason behind our suffering does not really matter. Nothing that happens is outside of God's knowledge and control, and every millisecond of suffering finds its meaning in God, who ordains all things. We must take comfort in that Job was rewarded in the latter days of his life. And so we who trust in God await the hope of an eternal existence with the Almighty. Job had this idea that one day in heaven he would be able to speak with the one on his behalf. And we have the one because we've read the whole story. We have the one who is our redeemer, who intercedes for us before the Father, and his name is Jesus. And through him, our hope and our victory in the end over suffering is secured, for willingly he actually submitted himself to suffering, to be crushed by God, to endure the wrath of God for us, so that we might live forever with him. Though Job received blessing after his suffering, we shouldn't expect that perhaps to happen after the chapter in our suffering in this life has concluded. But what we should expect is that this world, this chaos, this suffering will one day come to an end. And when it does, and what is coming is more than we could have ever dreamed of. For nothing will compare to his presence. For it is there we receive the greater portion. And God, full of goodness and absolute sovereignty, will do exactly as John describes in Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse 3, where it says, Behold, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And that is my hope. That is your hope. I will see my daughter Annie again. But even greater than that, I'll be with her as we stand before the reason of our hope, that we will look upon the one with nail prints in his hands and in his feet who sits on the throne, and my wife and I, along with our daughter Annie, we will worship. We will worship our Savior who will one day bring our family back together. And he won't let us separate again. And then like Joe, we will know that our suffering is over. All of it is over and it's over for good when we're finally with Jesus. Two times this past year, I've been in a memorial service for a child that has died before they reached their first birthday, with Annie's service being one of them. 
And I will tell you this, the worship and fervor for Christ and his glory was never more tangibly expressed through hearts lifting high the name of Jesus than in those moments. Because as we pursue him in our suffering, we discover more and more of Christ and all of his glories and excellencies that cannot be exhausted. As we worship him in our suffering, we become even more full and content in the finished work of Christ on the cross and the hope that he gives. And between here and there, we have to realize that God is sovereign and lovingly cares about you. And though he may take away in this life and allow you to walk through such awful suffering, understand that God himself suffered so that we might live. So regardless of how we suffer, God remains God. He remains faithful, good, and loving. A king who is truly gracious. If you don't know Jesus, simply put, you have no hope. Don't think that you do. And I would plead with you to come to Jesus, to repent of your sins, and to believe in his name. I cannot imagine going through life without loving him and being loved by him. Especially when I'm overwhelmed by suffering. He isn't a fix, though. He's so much more wonderful than that. Lastly, and in conclusion, many of you were well aware of Annie before today and have blessed us so very much with cards and with prayers, with donations and with love. On behalf of my family, we are forever grateful. (laughs) For the kindness you've shown us. Thank you all so much. I pray you've been encouraged this morning and if you have come to understand joe through the simple words that i've shared with you perhaps on your lips in the midst of the suffering that surrounds you are john's words which conclude the book of revelation in revelation chapter 22 he says this he who testifies to these things says surely surely i am coming soon response. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Thank you.